Welcome again to Hotbox the Cinema. How's it going, Seth? Pretty good. Pretty good, Nathan. Uh, it snowed last night, and it's not oh, snowy shit. anymore. Oh, yeah. The snow is just gone, and everything outside is just kind of like gray and wet right now. It's been pretty windy here in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, the sun is poking through now, but the sun was not shining earlier. Um I just ran to Dunkin' Donuts to get one of the $2, 2 to 6 p.m. happy hour medium lattes. Have you had their, like, Snoop Dogg sandwich? No, I didn't know that was a thing. The they Beyond. have, like, a, yeah, the Beyond, like, the plant-based thing. Apparently, Snoop Dogg is helping to promote this. Oh, it's wow. It's like a donut breakfast sandwich with a, a meat simulation patty in it. Here's what I always, real just quick aside about Dunkin' Donuts, because, you know, there are more... Dunkin' Donuts in New York City than any other fast food institution, and yeah, that's a that's a brave new world for like Starbucks country down here in Tennessee. Oh yeah, um, and right two blocks away from me, there's a combination Dunkin' Donuts, Popeyes, you know, because they're owned by the same parent company. And every time I go to Dunkin' Donuts, I find that I, if I'm gonna get a like breakfast food item, I would like to get a biscuit rather than a bagel or an English muffin. They don't have a biscuit option, and it's like you're owned by the same people who own Popeyes. Surely you could just trade recipes and make a Dunkin' Donuts biscuit. Come on. You have donut sticks. You have crewlers. You have twists. They should all make those things. When uh, Popeyes ran out of ba- the buns for their chicken yeah. sandwich, they should have just used the Dunkin' Donuts donuts as the buns. Oh my God! Make a Luther chicken yeah. sandwich. That's what the uh, that like Beyond Meat breakfast sandwich is. Is that it's like donut buns, but I kind of wanted to see if they would let me like pick whatever donut I wanted. Like I want a coconut donut with the shreds of coconut a Beyond on it. patty, but with chicken bun, like the KFC Double Down. Or there was that Taco Bell taco that was it's like the naked chicken taco where the shell was just molded. Like oh yeah, I had it. Yeah, yeah, I did too. It was you know, it was pretty. I think did we actually have those before seeing Resident Evil: The Final Chapter? That's not outlandish to. I think that we did make a a stop at Taco Bell to try those out, and I just remember it being pretty bland. Yeah, Um, it's no Doritos Locos Taco. You know what I'm saying? Oh no, that's a classic. I think that this though conversation about artificial food stuffs maybe segues a little bit into a conversation that is going to be very much about 
technology and the digital and the real and the artificial. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is funny because this is our second take of this episode. Damn. Um, Not a one take podcast this time. No. Um, and be, Apple is fucking stupid and you can't like, it's not really compatible with audacity anymore. Uh, so you can't use your external mic to record. And I forgot that and to not record in GarageBand like I should. So we're having to redo this whole thing over again, but hopefully we'll get the momentum going. Yeah. Um, but second take of a podcast episode about a one take movie. Yeah. The 1917, the big the year Oscar contender. It's our all yeah. Oscar coverage podcast, I guess. But it is the awards show inside scoop entertainment tonight. Yeah. Podcast. But, uh nineteen seventeen, I believe, won like the Golden Globe for Best Drama. Drama. They, oh, I and, forgot they have like drama and then comedy and musical as a separate Yeah, and it's been picking up some it picks up some BAFTAs, I think, which people say is a you know, a thermometer kind of test for the Oscars. Sam Mendez yeah, um, Roger Deakins cinematography on this. The team that brought you Skyfall. Benedict Cumberbatch, Colin Firth, some British boys who I don't know the names of. But so this, the movie, the reason that it's the, the one take movie is that this whole movie follows. It's supposed to follow these two troops that are traveling across all, across all creation to take this message to this squad of troops that are about to fallen just i don't know they're about to ambush something that they think is an easy win but it's actually like an ambush kind of situation yeah so these these two guys are traveling trekking across you know over the river and through the woods to deliver this message and the whole thing is followed by a a supposed single camera movement Mm -hmm. there's like a clear one take there's like a clear like cut to black in the middle with some time that passed in between the shot before and after so you know, but the whole thing is about this kind of continuous camera movement. Yeah. This stitched together, maybe more single take effect rather than like actual single take. You know, yeah. it's more of the Birdman variety than your like Russian arc or something like but, that. But, you know, in the uh, in the digital age, every movie is just a one stream of images. It's true. There is. So there is some. It's not. I'm not going to say that it's like faking what it's trying to do. Yeah. There is some, you know, it was not like filmed in one, you know, rehearsed, like continuous two hour stretch. A lot of digital stitching exactly. going on in the movie and everything like that. So I saw this a couple of weeks ago. When did you see this? I saw this um, just a couple of days ago. I secured a high quality, Whoa. finesse the plug for a high quality HD screener file. Secure so the I, bag alert. Exactly. I watched it in the comfort of my own home, but you had a much more, I think, interesting viewing experience than I did. Yeah. Last month, a friend and I went to go see it uh, in our local mall multiplex. Uh, There's a theater in the mall and they have uh, the 4DX seats, which I've talked about. I think I'm like the theme park cinema episode, but they're like the roller coaster motion mechanisms, smell, wind, rain, all those ticklers. They have a ticklers effect that they advertise um but all these effects that are programmed in sequence with the movie to to enhance the the experience so i went to go see it in that because i was like that seems like a pretty crazy way to watch like the the single tank world war the great war 
just running for two hours straight. And it ended up like like 90, 95% of the movie had like nothing. Yeah. And then the movie does a lot of, I actually didn't really appreciate a lot of the 40X effects in this thing. I've been really interested in 40X. I want to know like who programs these things. How do they get their jobs? It's fascinating to me. But with this movie, it's I. it ended up actually being an awful one because since it is a single take for like two hours, so much of it is just nothing happening. Mm-hmm. Lots of lulls. Um, and I don't like a lot of horror movies in part because they use kind of similar tactics to this one to give rises and reactions out of you where rather than, you know, creating this emotionally heightened moment and then, I don't know, having like the the thematic stakes or the the relationships at play yeah. i don't know create these like investments within you in the thing it really just like is very loud and inviting and kind of enveloping in style and then out of nowhere there's like a rapid cut big crash unexpected explosion mm-hmm. um kind of like prodding you a little bit to get you to jump and say oh you jumped yeah, it's very much a movie, I think, of like peaks and valleys, very extremes of experience, because I think the single take like really magnifies that sort of like artificial, like very mechanical, not to take us back to theme park cinema, but roller coaster structure, um, where like because so much of it is like, you know, really still periods of calm and then the camera sort of whips around again or like starts to move a lot. And the, you know, you sense that something is going to happen and then it all like the shit hits the fan again. Um, you know, that's really magnified, I think, by that single take effect. And it reminded me a lot of like gravity or something like that, where it's just like periods of still kind of pulls back and then everything starts to fall apart again and another disaster happens. And then there's a period of rest and then it's like intensifies again. And both of those, both of these movies, because they're such like effects spectacles, you know, both mm-hmm. 1917 and gravity, even though they're very different in what they're about, like just having those like innovative, you know, technical prowess, like m- makes, I think that the extremes of experience m- more intense, like between the, immersive you know overwhelming sound design or like the single take you know in a in a really intense action sequence versus the like periods of calm and still is so much more intense yeah one other thing when i was watching the movie that i couldn't really stop thinking about there's a uh, friend of the show ava lucia on twitter mm-hmm. tweeted something about um how 1917 is also the year of the russian revolution and how when she saw there's a movie called 1917 her mind just jumped to that immediately yeah yeah. not that i'm saying that everything else that happened in 1917 isn't worth making a movie about but it's interesting to me just posing this movie that is kind of a little bit just like detached from time a little bit all this like single flow of images and single view of history um up against 1917 and the russian revolution eventually leading to like soviet film theory and Soviet montage theory where the cutting and juxtaposing of different strips of film and images um, create relationships between them that can be used to political ends. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it's very interesting because on the one hand, the movie is so concerned with time. Like the ta- the log, the tagline is literally like time is the enemy. Uh, and, you know, the movie is just like continuous. Well, for a movie that says time is the enemy, 
It's also like maybe 30 minutes too long. Absolutely. And that's part of it is like if you're going to do this kind of experiment, I think it's in your best interest to keep it a little brief. But it's also like, you know, the movie just starts and it's like this clock that is just wound up and keeps going. And when the trailers first came out like a year ago, a lot of people were like, oh, this just looks like a kind of knockoff of Dunkirk, which is also very obsessed with time. You know, you have the ticking and the score, but also the different timelines and the uh, different temporalities kind of <clears throat> cutting back and forth. And this movie is very different because it's not playing with these kind of alternate timelines. It's just this single flow of like continuous experience that's supposed to immerse you in war because war like makes just time, you know, the, it just goes like it's just supposed to be like really uh, put you immerse you in the experience. Um, but on the other hand, it's very careless about time because like, Obviously, yeah, World War One going on at the same time as the Russian Revolution in 1917. But like, I don't know, when I think of World War One, I, I think of maybe like 1914 or 1918 more specifically. And so in terms of like being about time and being so focused in like the experience of time and how the audience, but also the characters experience time, it's also just very careless because it's just like it's not it doesn't really feel like connected to any real historical context. Like it doesn't emphasize being based on a true story or real events. It's just like, this is a sort of immersion empathy simulation, like of world war one to make you understand what it felt like to be in the war. Um, but even like some of the times where I feel like it is very liberal in the way that it uses time liberal yeah. meaning just like excessive and not in a political connotation but the times where it like kind of squalors in like these trenches i feel like even then you can't really appreciate maybe how being in trenches during world war one uh like shatters your brain's yeah. like conception yeah. of time just because the whole time with this movie being a single take like you're watching these scenes, you're like, oh, they're sitting here in the trenches. But you don't really get to like sit there just because you're kind of constantly anticipating when the next camera movement, you know, what they're going to go do next. You're kind of constantly anticipating the next action in a way that you don't in a movie where actions happen all the same and it's movies are a string of actions. But I mean, whenever, I don't know, it, it does create this kind of just like restlessness where I feel like you can't really sit and and maybe feel the different ways that time is is warped by war. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, because I think the thing about war is like, especially World War One with the trench warfare is like it's about the waiting, and there's no sense of like waiting or anticipation really, like truly in a kind of like felt way in this movie because everything is just always moving and always happening, and you're like going between these different physical environments. Always moving and it presents, you know, going back to Soviet montage, which I think is something that's really like, you know, that was an innovation in film language that be came out of an innovation in political language. And like if the Russian revolution hadn't happened the way that like Eisenstein and company <laughs> conceived uh, montage and thought about the relationship between images probably would have been very different. Uh, maybe people would have come to these ideas, but they would have been in a different context and the political resonance would have been different. But, you know, his whole thing was like putting one image after the other 
together they it produces a third kind of meaning that the images don't inherently have of themselves like in that relationship so putting them you know in sequence and in, in order and so that produces this kind of like dialectical re- relationship where it's about what the two things produce together what the like discourse and conversation between those images produces not just the images individually on their own terms and so in contrast to like Eisenstein and montage in the cinema of 1917, the movie 1917 just says like, no time is just like experienced linearly, like forward, always moving, always going uh, ahead, frontward, forward motion. Um, and it's just like one solid block of time. Like that's what history is. And it just feels like a very interesting movie Because it's, on the one hand, not necessarily super specific about the war, but it's also just, like, very, like, rah-rah nationalistic, like, UK, good feelings. And, like, I don't know, as Brexit and everything is going on, it's kind of an odd movie to come out politically. Yeah. And also, I mean, in the last, like, five to ten years, there's been, like, a good bit of of the World War I nostalgia stuff kind of going around. Yeah, Um, absolutely. I mean, things like... War Horse, Wonder Woman, Tolkien, uh, the game Battlefield 1, all of these things that, I mean, all kind of have the exact same, like, lens, color palette, like, mm-hmm. kind of nostalgic and, and very kind of sacred look back at this war, which, I mean, does kind of, the reason those things keep happening, and it's not just like they made War Horse and then the World War One isn't really made into a movie again for a while, is because that also resonates with the way a lot of people think about World War One. Yeah. Given, I mean, there is a pretty big historical context of it being one of what people call like the first industrial wars, where it's this thing that was so brutal because now you had machines that were uh, of industrialization that are now being brought into like weapons manufacturing and being manufactured into weapons themselves um, in different ways than like guns had been made before that. Mm-hmm. Um but I mean, also people get just very nostalgic about it was a simpler time and people went out and they fought with for honor, but they really didn't mm. know why they were fighting. And I don't know, it's always this yeah, like, just yeah. juxtaposition of like more pure virtues of the past up against this war that looking back, I mean, probably wasn't that meaningful. <laughs> yeah, literally like the call of duty. Um, but yeah, and it's like, you have that sort of warm feelings, but also I think like, you know, like you're saying with World War One being considered this like first very industrialized war and obviously all war is fucking terrible and awful, but like, you know, people particularly focus on like the gruesomeness of this sort of like early, uh, industrial technology and how like, you know, machine guns and mustard gas and like tanks and early airplanes and stuff were just like making warfare like really really uh kind of depraved maybe i don't know in a way that it like necessarily hadn't been um and so i think people are always and also because just the political historical context like you know world war one is just such a confusing seemingly meaningless war just kind of like because of all these politically incestuous relationships and alignments and alliances and stuff. And it's just like, what was even the point of it all? So I think there's a lot of attempt to like 
a lot of desire to go back and to revisit it and to try to like instill it with the clarity and certainty that our national narrative has around World War II, where we're like, this was a just justified, righteous, good war. You know, it's not the feelings aren't so clear with World War One. And so I think a lot of these a lot of this media is like trying to go back to like find the meaning and to like justify it and make it a thing that we're like proud of. Yeah. And also, I mean, in this discussion of, you know, the way people view history and and maybe repose it over time, it reminds me a little bit of the movie. Well, I mean, the whole movie 1917 is kind of takes this stance in the one take, the singular singular flow of motion and time and everything um, is kind of mirroring the the teleological kind of way of looking at history of being this flow of of everything that is constantly be leading up to the current moment meaning that the current moment basically is just like the ultimate moment mm-hmm. of progress and innovation and equality and you know it's always a step forward in in time and maybe not saying that history sometimes in terms of like human rights and and equitable existence sometimes takes like sidesteps or backsteps. Yeah. Yeah, for um, sure. Basically rather than seeing like history as as you said with Dunkirk this this thing that is maybe more fragmented and then pieced together but not all experienced as one thing rather than seeing it as these disparate parts that can be viewed from multiple angles. Mm-hmm. Um 1917 is kind of about looking back at history and seeing it as one singular thing in service of the current moment essentially. Yeah, I mean I think you see that, you know, one of the one world one of the World War 1 movies you mentioned recently in the, from the past few years, Wonder Woman, um kind of is a good example of this because the movie in that movie, you know, she Wonder Woman is this like supposed to be this empowering icon and she assembles this like ethnically and racially diverse coalition of soldiers to fight in the war. And obviously like you know this is something that 1917 points out too, which is that World War One was not just a war between white Europeans, but Wonder Woman kind of like takes today's progressive values about diversity and representation and applies it to World War One and says like, look, yeah, you know, this war was the result of all these meaningless, pointless treaties and like decades of complicated relationships between different dynasties and families and whatever. But You know, we have this like diverse squadron of soldiers fighting this like superhero villain. And so that's what makes it a good thing because it confirms to like the good progressive values of today. Yeah, there was a I've been reading this book, The Social Photo by Nathan Jurgensen that came out last year. And it's kind of about he's a sociologist that's hired like full time at Snapchat. Yeah, which is kind of crazy. But also he runs the, uh, the online journal Real Life which is pretty instructive to, I guess, a lot of the thoughts that we have on this podcast. But in this book, he talks a lot about like fake nostalgic photos, like Instagram and, and Hipstamatic and a bunch yeah. of earlier like photo editing apps for much baser smartphones about 10 years ago or so. Um, but, you know, kind of what looking at the current moment or making something in the current moment, but putting these kind of signifiers of of the past onto it what that does. And there's one quote in here about nostalgia where he says the v- this view of life is frameable as an inherently nostalgic gaze. Mm-hmm. Like all nostalgia, this gaze is conservative. It views backward and its inclination is to preserve. 
Nostalgia looks toward what once was, not toward what could be. It promotes calm over change, solid stillness over fluid movement, which I feel like in the ways that World War I gets looked at now, a lot of it is kind of frozen in this, I don't know, very just honorable from all angles mm-hmm. type of view. The troops, the boys. Yep. The big one over there. Uh, another thing that is similar to wonder woman but also i feel like thematically and theoretically relates a lot to 1917 is the steven spielberg movie war horse oh yeah uh this movie about this you know this horse that lives on this british countryside and then ends up being used in the uh in the british fight in world war one and then it essentially is kind of like forrest gump of having all of these like massive historically contingent moments maybe not historically contingent but you know very big emblematic moments happen that this horse just kind of stumbles through. Mm -hmm. When I was researching it, I found out the book for war horse was actually based on like several different stories from different people that were all collected and compiled into one single horse's story. And they could Mm -hmm. be something where, you know, an enemy troop has a story about this one horse. And then this other troop has the story about the horse delivering supplies in just the nick of time. And these are all different horses, but by uniting them all into a single narrative, it, it does present, kind of a lighter fictionalized version of like a horse's possible experience in world war one. But in seeing the protagonist as the movie of the movie as this horse, that is not one horse, but is actually mm-hmm. multiple horses. Um, and all of the events of the movie, not as happening to a single horse, but actually happening to multiple horses, then kind of compiled together. It actually reminded me of 1917 and how this yeah. movie, um, Essentially, rather than a horse experiencing World War One, it's a camera operator going through World War One. It's not a single camera operator or a single camera movement because it's digitally stitched together across multiple takes. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, the camera operator in 1917 is more of a protagonist than either of the two characters that you're watching the whole time. Yeah, he really is. When I was watching the movie, I mean, I most of it I could only think about not what was actually happening, but like where the camera was, how the camera's moving through the landscape. It was more conscious of that than I was of the actual like emotional narrative happening on screen. Yeah, no, I mean, there's really no emotional connection at all to the two main guys in the movie. And like you're saying, the camera is really like the avatar and the protagonist um, of the narrative, but also like, you know, the audience avatar and who we sort of project onto and relate to. Um, yeah, uh, yeah it, exactly. Like Warhorse synthesizes these sort of multiple perspectives of the war into one whole, uh, this, the like single take t- effect in 1917 does very much, I think the same thing. And it was actually interesting, like watching this movie, um, while I've been playing Wolfenstein, the new order, um, you know, the Wolfenstein game that came out a few years ago. Um, it was like the first reboot. Yeah. And it like, it just made me think about it because there are just moments in 1917 where it feels very much like choices in a video game where like you have multiple, 
uh, forks in front of you, multiple temporal paths you can take and you make a certain choice and you go down one path of events in the game and then other options are now closed off to you. Um, Cause like in uh, Wolfenstein, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff in that. Like I've been playing that game and it, and it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable sometimes like some of the levels because yeah, like there's, it's a very, just like, I don't, it's, it's a very confident video game. Yeah, no, it's like, you know, it's uh, about, you know, the Nazis win World War II and it's like in the 60s and you're an American soldier still fighting. And there's just like one level early on where you're like trapped in basically like a concentration camp furnace room and you have to like escape in the nick of time. And so just turning that like horrible, terrible, traumatic real life thing into this just sort of like escape room video game puzzle makes me feel a little weird. And like right after that part in the game, you're forced to make this like Sophie's choice where there are two of your comrades, like in your platoon or whatever. And this evil Nazi doctor is like, I'm going to harvest his face. Like you have to choose which one dies and which one lives. And so the game, you know, goes in a different direction based on who you choose. And Mm. in the middle of 1917, when spoiler alert, one of the two British boys whose name I can't remember dies, like it really feels like the, you know, the camera choosing like, okay, now we're going to go down this narrative path. And, you know, uh, just like it goes, it feels like making it really like feels like making a choice on a game. It's a little bit like a, like a speed run. You're like, we're doing a speed run and we're doing all, you know, all left turns this time. We're choosing this character for this speed run. I think Esther Rosenfield wrote like a letterboxed review, just making like a big joke about like speed run, 100% completion, soldier <laughs> one run kind of thing. It was really funny. Yeah, it's basically like a World War One speed run, I think, um, because mm-hmm. I think the like t- kind of tempo and momentum that the movie occurs at is really important to it. A lot of it is just kind of like groundwork until you get to the big like climactic moments of having to. I got to hit this jump at just this time and I have seven yeah. frames before I can get out of here and this window closes to hack this other thing. And watching speedruns is a lot of just watching kind of monotonous mechanical movement until these points of climax. Yeah. And, you know, people online have been saying like 1917 is a video game. It's kind of feels like the new uh, Death Stranding as cinema. Um, mm-hmm. But it really does in just this like very um, unempathetic like way of events just sort of happening narrative choices being made and just like actions have to be taken it just really does feel sort of like a video game and you mentioned it very briefly but there is a like recent world war one video game yeah well one thing on this topic i wanted to say before we switch over to talk about like battlefield one was that this game, I mean, I talked about how when I watch, I mean, I identify more with like the camera operator and just thinking about where they're going and everything like that. But also when I play a lot of video games, most of the time I don't feel crazy connected to like all the characters in the game yeah. or anything like that. I mean, I'll enjoy like a good story, but I feel like the, I don't know, I always like know that I'm not that character. I'm this like person who's like framing the situation. I don't know, I feel like, I'm a camera operator in some mm-hmm. instances in in video games. There was something when I was playing like the new Resident Evil 2 remake that came out last year. 
Um, I was thinking about that and third person shooters and everything like that. And that game is a really glossy kind of third person shooter, Mm -hmm. but I didn't really understand why it got so much like critical praise because it doesn't feel like it does much new, but last year had a lot of games that were just kind of remakes and reapproaches of ideas or really nicely solidifying an idea, but not exactly adding much to it, Mm -hmm. at least in like the, the major video games that, that came out last year. But I was thinking about this thing when I was playing it about how video games you are, or at least those third person shooters, you're manipulating like the actor. If it were related to movies, you're like manipulating the actor mm-hmm. and getting to certain places. You're kind of mainly actually like the stunt double and the camera operator at the same time. But you're like the stunt <laughs> yeah. double in between the big cutscenes that the the big face nice looking actor is in. But then you're doing all the shooting and. Mm-hmm. making them look good and everything but also you're controlling the camera uh whenever you do those so it's this weird sensation of identifying being split between being an actor and being a camera operator at the same time almost a little bit like vlogging mm-hmm. but i mean our, you know movies are kind of that split identification too because we are identifying like with the characters on screen but also the perspective visually mm-hmm. um when uh when I, I think a lot about Kane and Lynch too, but it came back in my mind recently because that game is one that draws such a hard barrier between the camera operator mm-hmm. and like the actor where you're running and doing all this stuff and games like Gears of War that are this kind of gritty, hard action in your face presentation of the violence in those games. Whenever you run, the camera like ducks down and kind of like stays with the body motion and mm-hmm. mimics that in the camera movement of the run. Um, so it's like magnetized to that a little bit like a David Fincher, like camera movement or something like that. And even like the skate games have like this like skate camera filmer guy who's following you. And he has like a bit of like a wider angle lens on his little camera and he's like getting all your tricks and stuff. And it looks like the whole game is presented as a skate movie. Mm-hmm. But Kane and Lynch too, like there's a camera operator following you around with his digital video camera. And that's the game like video feed that you have to navigate it through and Whenever you run the camera sway is that of the camera operator rather than that that's magnetized to like the the character body and everything. And whenever mm-hmm. an explosion happens, there's all this like visual compression that happens around the area where where it takes place. A lot of people compare that game to to Michael Mann movies mm-hmm. and his like total embrace of like the the pixels that are like overexposed or oversaturated. But the game also is just this complete chaos. A little bit like I watched Olivier Sias's Boarding Gate, and and that mm-hmm. movie kind of captures a lot of that chaos of being totally lost and and I don't know that kind of nihilism. Yeah, absolutely of the game. But in thinking about that, nineteen seventeen does relate a lot to to video games and the way that it's presented, and it involves you not as much in the story happening on the screen, but it involves you of the capturing of that story. Mm-hmm. And the way that video games that a lot of the prestige video games that came out around the time that Wolfenstein did. I'm thinking of games like The Last of Us, basically kind of the the mid 2010s um, of these like very big prestige story games um, where they tell this really nice story and they have all these like signifiers of nice production value that in video games don't require the same kind of material production of like uh, color grading and lighting and everything like that, because though it's very expensive and takes a lot of time to learn how to make a video game cutscene. It's not materially constrained in the way that a prestige, like well-produced and very expensive TV show can be. Yeah. But all those games also 
the split between cutscene and game that everyone has been trying to dissolve for the last like 10 to 20 years is just as visible as ever. Um, so one of the video games that is related to World War One that came out in the same kind of period of reapproaching it that all these movies did was Battlefield One uh, from EA and and Dice. Um, and when that game got announced, it was like a pretty I don't know it was like kind of controversial just because people were like you can't make a video game about World War One that is just like basically saying that it's being disrespectful to make a video game about World War One, <clears throat> which when it got announced there were a lot of like weird ways of talking about world war one because they were mainly talking about it like they do a regular war that is the center of a video game and they're making mm -hmm. like memes and stuff like that about like owning noobs and having gifts of a flamethrower burning somebody in a multiplayer match to pair that with or like they sold some gamer lounge where they sold like a onesie that had the battlefield one promo art wrapping mm -hmm. around it it's called the battlefield onesie i mean it's kind of the same sort of thing of like merchandising the these uncomfortable histories like with the wolfenstein like basically holocaust level um because there was that game recently with like you'll have to remind me which game but um with the like white phosphorus uh chemical weapon that like appears in two main games when it came up recently it was controversial because it's in the new modern warfare game and it's mm -hmm. a kill streak you get online so if you kill enough people in the same life in an online deathmatch, you get a super weapon that you get to choose if you kill like five people in a row or something like that. And white phosphorus is one of those. Um, but that game actually, or that weapon actually came up in the uh, the game Spec Ops The Line from Jaeger Software, mm -hmm. I think. But that game's like came out around like 2012 or 2013 when there was kind of an oversaturation of military shooters after that whole, the seventh generation had all these like you know, Gears of War, Army of Two, Kane yeah. and Lynch as well. Um, a big, like, Call of Duty became very, very popular again. Um, but this game is, like, a, inspired heavily by Heart of Darkness, and the whole game is just kind of, like, making you do military shooter stuff and then, like, asking you why you did that and, mm -hmm. like, blaming you for the situation the developer put you in, but also m making you question, like, well, maybe I shouldn't be playing a game that's about all this. But one of the levels is you're in a plane and you shoot white phosphorus on people that mm -hmm. you're told are all are all Jesus. I don't know, disagreeable in one way or another. Yeah. Not innocent people. And then you go down on the ground and you're actually one of the troops that has to walk through this white phosphorus that's been laid down. Mm -hmm. So it's something I am not the biggest fan of that game, but people who really do like that game cite that level a lot as a as a pretty major moment. In the game, but also, I guess, like games talking about military yeah. activity. I mean, it's something where people feel just in normal American life, like this certainty and this righteousness about World War Two, where like that was like a justified and good and noble war. And like, a, oh, well, you know, our the peak. lines were black and white back then. It was a total moral involvement. Exactly. And like our, you know, it was the peak of our country and everybody was chipping in and helping each other out and helping out the war effort. Yeah, etc., etc. Grown my victory garden. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I remember, like, as a kid, getting a like a box set of the Battlefield games, like you know, Battlefield nineteen forty two and and etc. Um, but it included Battlefield Vietnam, which was like secretly my favorite because you could get in the helicopter or like in your a jeep and play like a soundtrack of sixty songs and listen to like 
the kinks and stuff and i would like add you could add mp3s and so i would add like baba o'reilly <laughs> and listen to that while i was like gunning down the Viet Cong. um but i also like in the back of my head i was like this feels kind of wrong because you know this is this war that like is very clearly wrong on the american part and like people have such complicated feelings about and so it feels very weird putting it in the context of a video game and i think you know world war one is a bit different but it also has that sort of like uncertainty and that seeming meaninglessness. And so people are constantly trying to like reconcile that and like assign it a purpose. And so you see in all this media kind of like projecting the current values onto this war that people are confused about and, and want to like be clear and, and have a good, you know, moral purpose like World War II does in our national narrative. Yeah. Battlefield One has this. I don't know, like the campaign opens up with this big. Well, it actually opens up with this like level where you're just like fighting some people and you die. And then the camera zooms up, shows like the name of this real soldier Mm -hmm. says, oh, you died right here. And then you go to another soldier's perspective and you keep like dying and embodying another soldier as you're kind of just being inundated with enemy troops. Uh, But then after that, when that's kind of like a prologue to the rest of the game, um, there's this this kind of bumper video that plays that just like does like kind of the Spielberg zoom on mm-hmm. or the Spielberg like truck in on somebody's like heroic face or emotional point on like all these different soldiers from different sides of the war. And it's just like we were all soldiers. We were all <laughs> fighting, you know, just doing our best mm-hmm. to change the world. It was a crazy time, but, you know, and it's just. I don't know. It's a war that just, it seems like everybody is just, you know, yeah, it just had to be fought, but everybody did a good job. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Kind of this whole conversation makes me think about this line in uh, Joe Dante's excellent and underrated anti-war satire, small soldiers, where there's this like suburban dad, like watching a history channel documentary about world war two. And he's just like, ah, World War II is my favorite war. You know, just that like idea of somebody having a favorite war is kind of insane. But it's also like a very common thing in American culture. Um, Yeah, like I remember in like third and fourth grade, there were kids that just like had, they just had a war that is picked out and just (laughs) read everything in the school library on. Yeah, I mean, that was me, you know, for a period of time in elementary school. Like, I was really obsessed with the American Revolution for a while, but I also, like, wanted to be an army ranger and, like, in the CIA. Um, which I'm just, like, giving more evidence for my cancellation here. But uh, there was this, when like, I was like... When I was a kid, I was like, they just get to use gadgets, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's... There's no real use about... Or there's no real knowledge at least when you're a really young kid about what the gadgets are used for or what is caused by the use of those gadgets yeah exactly like you know it was just like sort of these like picture books basically of like you know gadgets through history i'm trying to what what is that like series of kids books the like visual dictionaries I know what you're talking about. But yeah. They have but, like the, the reader level on them. Yeah, basically. Like I had a bunch of Star Wars ones, but there were like a lot of history ones. And um, yeah, I think I had one about sharks. There is like that. It's just like that kind of like, you know, just a collection of objects. Like that's what being a spy is. And being an agent of imperialism is to American children. It's just like putting on a black sweatsuit and like 
a mask and um you know, you know having a having a pin that secretly has a single bullet inside of it exactly and like sunglasses that allow you to see behind you and shit like that um but i mean the thing is is like you know why what's the like in other than like physical material gains and like issues of resources you know i mean the thing about wars is is that at least in america wars are like fought to bring to create a narrative basically you know to like bring the country together in some kind of forced solidarity um some kind of like counterfeit solidarity and go go ahead i was just gonna say you know just supporting the troops exactly just like the uniting the the yellow ribbon on your car you can't hate the troops you know yeah um you can hate the war but you can't hate the troops you can hate the game Mm -hmm. but not the players so basically but i think it's kind of the same thing in some ways like to take it back to 1917 and these sort of like visual spectacles of war because basically like so many war movies are really reliant on like immersive blockbuster effects or cutting edge digital technology Mm -hmm. like saving i mean that's what that's what war movies kind of have always been yeah i mean even if you go back to maybe like war movies of the 40s and 50s i mean they are still just this i mean they're technical spectacle you know yeah i mean they're given thematic and dramatic weight because they're premise but you know yeah i think that i have mentioned this on on the podcast before but it really reminds me of this like anecdote from the movie swimming to cambodia the spalding gray's like monologue movie where he's talking about filming the killing fields um in you know it's about cambodia but i think they filmed it in like the philippines or something he said that they were filming a like battle sequence in that movie and he was like up in a helicopter and was seeing this like everybody reenacting this war and he was like maybe if we just like took the resources that we use on actual wars every year and like just had a fake war, just had basically like military reenactment, then maybe it would like scratch the itch that we have to like go to war to like make these huge productions and kind of like create this narr- this imperial narrative. Maybe we should just like act it out, um, which a lot of times is like, I think the itch that movies and other popular media satisfy but it's all about like creating a message. And so I think that's the thing about going back to World War One, is that we're unclear about the purpose of the war, the meaning of the war, and we want to make sense of it. We want to assign some like righteous value to it. And something like 1917, which is this kind of digital experiment, is also like not just trying to sell us on World War One being a good war, but is also trying to sell us on this new technology. So they're trying to like work out these things together. And I think that a lot of times, you know, wars and, and filmmaking technology kind of mirror each other because it's like we produce the ability to make a movie that's a single take, you know, through digital cameras, through nonlinear editing technology. And so we can make this movie. So we have to make a movie to justify having that technology in the first place. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's now you kind of have started to see a lot of the like fuck you digital compositing basically kaleidoscopic stuff like cats and doolittle and like every marvel movie call us the wild this war of nuclear deterrence but about (laughs) i don't know just like burning up graphics cards yeah i mean it it, it, i saw on 420 2018 i saw um rampage with dwayne johnson and i was like 
fucking stoned out of my mind on an edible. And I just yeah. got like really emotional at one part in the movie because he was like touching a gorilla. And I was like, whoa, like that gorilla is like made all out of pixels and computer code. And it's basically just like a server like. And so Dwayne Johnson is like, you know, in the narrative of the movie, like connecting with animals. But in reality, he's like connecting with computers and he's like the computer whisperer. And basically, uh, I mean, but also, I mean, the movie was like delivered on a hard drive. Yeah. And it's playing in a DCP system. Yeah. So it's all about, you know, like, yeah, it's so like the stuff like cats and Doolittle is like exist because why not? Because it's like we have the capacity to. So we have to make it. And I think that war and like specifically like, you know, super weapons and, and weapons in the nuclear age and missiles and things like that. You know, we create them. We have the capacity to make them exist. We build up these massive arsenals and then it's like we have to go to war. We have to manufacture a war to justify having all of these weapons and yeah. to create a meaning behind them. And it's so it's the same kind of dual mirroring thing. I usually always kind of I don't remember where I read it, but it may have been in that book, The Prehistory of the Cloud. But I mean, I keep coming back to this idea that I'll pretty much most technological development is funded either by military or government or corporate interests. Yeah. So most of the time, these things are intertwined in this way where progresses in technology as we use them in civil life or most of the time mirrored and and directly in relation with progresses in technology for for other means as well whether mm -hmm. that's i don't know selling more products or whether that is more effectively conducting warfare i these things are all kind of connected there's actually in uh paul virilio's book war and cinema which is pretty close to to what we're talking about right now uh one of his like biggest quotes or one of the ones that i've seen pop up pretty much more than any other one um but it's also pretty potent for how short it is so i understand mm -hmm. is uh history progresses at the speed of its weapon systems so this idea that technology is always progressing and kind of defines the time that you live in by i don't know just like the things that are produced the way things are made and sold mm -hmm. to you. And also, I mean, you do get, you know, I mean, medicine improvements have also been made as well. You know, our understanding of like science and stuff also increases as this goes on, but it's very inseparable from the core tenets of where it gets funded from. I mean, this also defines like how we see wars in the past is how they've been documented. Things like the civil war being the first photographed war on American soil World War One being filmed, one of the first like mm -hmm. filmed military involvements. Um, Vietnam and television, you know. Exactly, yeah. And then, I mean, obviously, the war on terror and 9-11 and all of these things being brought. I mean, the Gulf War before it broadcast on the 24-hour news cycle, yeah. but uh, the war on terror that is still ongoing, kind of doing a lot to terraform the way that news interacts on like a major internet ecosystem. Yeah, more like the war on images, you know, because it's it, it is a sort of That's like not, that is not the only war on images. No, absolutely not. But it's just, you know, it's like a war that's sourced from social media posts or like video clips that people take and upload. Um, and the narrative is constructed out of this like whole network or ecosystem of images as opposed to just like one source. Mm -hmm. But it's also interesting to think about the way that 
the images that we capture of a certain war do change the way that we not just look at it at the time. Obviously, if something like Vietnam, where people are seeing, you know, yeah. televised live footage of that war, like in their homes, and that influenced public opinion, but also like the way that it's remembered in hindsight. Um, I think an interesting way to reframe that is the new Peter Jackson documentary, They Shall Never Grow Old, that's about World War One, which uses all archival footage of World War One. Um, but it was sanctioned by BBC for like TV broadcast. And they asked Peter Jackson if he just wanted to just get access to their vaults and see if he could make anything mm-hmm. for for their kind of centennial honoring of World War One. Um, and so he took all this archival footage. It was all filmed on black and white, I believe like 16 millimeter, but it was before synchronized sound was standard on all cameras. So it didn't have to keep a constant rate of images to synchronize with a sound reel. So it's all hand cranked images. Um, so you have inconsistent frame rates, you have kind of destabilized flows of images because of body motion. And also, I mean, it's black and white, but Peter Jackson took all this footage and the way that the documentary is pitched is that it's all colorized, modernized mm-hmm. images that are all archival footage. And it's this, I don't know, it, it's kind of pitched at like this new truth that you're seeing that it peels back to the artifice of all these like old media formats and time and everything. But actually the way that it comes to these like new images that meet our modern viewing standard are all like prescriptive and additive and they don't actually subtract mm-hmm. these layers of artifice. They only add more, whether that is digitally cleaning up images to be a 4k resolution, colorizing them based off what you think the color should look like. Cleaning up the images is also based off what you think should be in this like mass of of black and you don't actually know what's in there uh but you can kind of infer uh also i mean for sound they had forensic lip readers come in mm-hmm. and analyze what people were saying and then voice actors say it um you had foley artists predict what the battlefield sounded like you also had them add extra images to create a constant flow that is 24 frames a second wherever there were those dips but it's this this movie that doesn't unveil new truth but only kind of prescribes our current understanding of world war one back mm-hmm. onto truthful archival images that were made during world war one yeah it it's i think the kind of the key with it is that like it's trying to bring it to contemporary viewing standards and it's trying to like as we've talked about uh a little bit like ideologically with some of the other recent world war one movies this like very much literally visually tries to make our view of world war one like conform conform to sort of modern a modern worldview i guess um Mm -hmm. but also i mean as i mentioned with 1917 it employs this kind of view of history that views everything as being in service of the current moment and this current moment being the most you know the best most truthful time to mm-hmm. ever be alive. And so, I mean, I guess the the sentiment underlying the whole technical project of the Peter Jackson documentary is that modern viewing standards are truthful rather than, you know, a technology that is created for military, government, and corporate yeah. interests most of the time. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting in thinking about it in line with some of Peter Jackson's other projects um like very early in his career he made this mockumentary called forgotten silver which is about a like which is about film preservation and is about this like fictional outsider australian filmmaker who gets rediscovered 
And also, you know, he worked on uh, Tintin with Spielberg, who I think like, you know, Spielberg is, of course, a really big key uh, with this kind of like historical spectacle we're talking about with like, you know, being the kind of master of blockbuster high concept entertainment, but then like selling himself as a serious artist with Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, which like really reimagine traumatic historical events as like visual spectacle. And that's kind of, you know, been the MO of his career ever since. It's just like these big American narratives are, are sort of his specialty. But Tintin is interesting because it was this like big motion capture experiment, which now has kind of turned into a dead franchise, a little bit like Avatar, where it's like, is there going to be a second one? Maybe. I don't know. But, um, you know, like the Tintin comics are these kind of often colonialist stories but using motion capture, like literally to take it to the most literal extent, like motion capture kind of colonizing like the image of the human body or something like that. Well, yeah, I mean, digitally mapping, prescriptively mapping. Yeah. Jackson also, I think maybe like the most interesting movie for this purpose is King Kong, because I think King Kong is like the original is very central to it, just sort of like current popular conception of early Hollywood cinema, you know, it's like very tactile, very film, black and white. You've got the Ray Harryhausen claymation puppets and and stuff. So it's this very tactile movie. And then Peter Jackson remakes it with CGI and with cutting edge digital effects to like prove the value of digital cinema. And throughout the 21st century, I think you see a couple of times people returning to silent cinema and other early forms of cinema to like prove the kinship between the history of cinema and current digital filmmaking technology. I mean, something like Hugo. I mean, people are always like afraid of, you know, is this the death knell of cinema, this new technology? So it's constantly just like using old cinema to, to prove it's like worth. Exactly. It's saying, you know, no, nothing has changed. Like this is just bringing it back to the basics, like a return to form. I mean, it gets into kind of like the cinema of tractions that we've talked about, you know, in earlier episodes, just like the connection between these earlier moving image forms of like novelty moving images, basically, and blockbuster cinema. But, you know, you have something like Hugo, which remakes George Melies short films in 3D, something like The Artist. Um but also, I think a good example is like Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, which was such mm-hmm. a big like early green screen experiment. Um, it's like the first movie that was like filmed all in front of blue screens. Yeah, exactly. I mean, not all of it. You may have like a fully furnished office, but a window outside of it is blue screened. Yeah. And it was like, you know, made by this guy who has not directed a feature film since who made just this like proof of concept short in his garage. And it's this total retro futurist kind of imagining of World War II that feels like hyper artificial, super digital. Also, like it's cutting edge in terms of the, the, the green screen, blue screen, chroma key stuff. But it's also like years before Princess Leia was brought back to life and de-aged, um, you know, they brought back Laurence Olivier <laughs> to life for that movie so it's again it's like you're saying here's this scary new technology you know here's the forbidding robot cyberman but actually it's just like friendly old film you know it's the same one thing that kind of i'm reminded of also in terms of like going back to old periods of entertainment Mm -hmm. but approaching them with this like total new technological uh kind of outlook and tool set 
tool set <laughs> meant tool set and toolkit at the same time um is uh i'm reminded of david fincher's uh, curious case of benjamin button which yeah. is it's tied to the past is that it's based on a f scott fitzgerald short story but also i mean the whole movie has this very like nostalgic look to it in terms of like looking at maybe the way that digital technology is used to mimic these like nostalgic aesthetics and mm-hmm. and signifiers and stuff whether you have like color grading of really old pictures that have been around for like 30 years since they were since they were printed and everything but also it's this movie to relate it directly to to world war one it opens up with this prologue the whole thing has this like narrative frame of Kate blanchett on her deathbed i think talking to like juliet binoche mm-hmm. i can't remember if it's actually her or not um the whole movie's her telling her about falling in love with benjamin button and their whole like story and it's happening as hurricane katrina this natural force is impending on the hospital that's yeah. in louisiana uh, but it opens up with this prologue about a clockmaker uh, who's making a clock for the town's train station. His son goes off to fight in World War One, and he finds out that his son has died in World War One. So the clockmaker unveils the clock, and it actually ticks backwards. And he gives this speech about if only time could tick backwards. This clock is like dedicated to all the people who lost their lives, and I mean, should get them back by reversing time. Um, and so this plays over footage of world war one soldiers that are charging and then getting shot and falling to their death but it's actually happening in reverse through through digital editing and so it is mm. the movie looking back at the past but also like very clearly being willing to to augment the past and and maybe use digital technology to inspect it mm-hmm. in in a couple different ways which the movie also then signals because benjamin button as a child is is well looks like an old man but has only <laughs> been around for a couple of years he plays with world war one action figures and little army men figurines and kind of poses them in his own ways and i feel like that signals a lot of the way that the movie uses digital technology mm-hmm. to to kind of look at history as a dollhouse rather than as this this constant string of events but rather something to have that has individual little pieces that can be manipulated and, and looked at from different angles yeah i mean that's kind of how 1917 feels where like you know you have it just i can't remember who exactly it was like i think it's like bella balash or rudolf arnheim or somebody but some early film theorist writing about the silent era says that you know because you didn't have dialogue you had to a lot of silent films had to like use these very easily identifiable visual signifiers to like let you know, you know, character relationships and who various people were. So that's kind of like where the trope of, you know, villains wearing a black hat and having a twirly mustache <laughs> comes from. And I think video games rely on that same sort of shorthand a lot of the time. But I really felt it in 1917 where it's like there's the one scene in the middle where like a German plane gets shot down and crashes next to the two soldiers and they're wearing green and they're, you know, these great upright British boys and they rescue this German pilot even though he's the enemy. They pull him out of the burning plane and then he tries to stab one of the dudes and immediately like they shoot him and then the soldier who got stabbed dies and it's very sad but like the german pilot is just like wearing all black and we know nothing about him we don't understand what he's saying you know he's just this like basically an npc but he's just like you know in black they're in green and it's just like okay you know it's like we know who these people are and they're just essentially like toy soldiers you know in service of this narrative of the war yeah that's a little bit like uh the new call of duty game they are promoting it you know 
like 10 years ago, Modern Warfare 2 had this level that's really controversial. Mm-hmm. It's in an airport and you're shooting civilians and stuff like that. And it was this really controversial thing that people are like, you know what? This game dared to do it. It dared to have this very serious thing going on. So this new Call of Duty Modern Warfare game, when they were marketing it, they were like, we're going to have a very serious game. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like they were kind of pitching it in this way of having all these moments of absolute vacuum sealed shocking moments Um, and one of them was you're raiding this house and this woman is holding what looks like a baby and you choose not to shoot her and it turns out she actually has a gun oh god it's like wrapped up like a baby and so then you she starts shooting at you because you gave her the benefit of the doubt it's the fucking classic bullshit like i don't know narrative about vietnam of like oh you don't know like you know any kid with a stroller could, you know, be have a bomb or like, which is yeah. the same logic that like cops use when they shoot kids. I mean, it's the same thing that was very common after 9-11 happened. Yeah. People assumed like anybody who from a very uninformed view about Islam, anybody who like had these things that people in America associated with Islam, they were like, oh, they... I don't know, man. Yeah. They might be in this total like fascist way of looking at people and seeing them as just either terrorist or not. Yeah. But to go back to Benjamin Button uh, for a second, I mean, I think that movie's kind of interesting because it's like it connects to an uh, earlier episode, Baby Yoda, um, in this old man baby yeah. <laughs> that the movie's about. Um, Constantly baby, but not baby. Exactly. In this in between state. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but like that movie uh well you know so you know as we talked about on the baby yoda episode on an earlier episodes like you have at cusps of change at points in in cinema's history like when new effects technology is introduced or new innovations are made in animation like you know you have a lot of films revisiting dinosaurs and also a lot of films experimenting with like making human babies and trying to make a believable uh on uncanny baby uh because it's so hard to get that human quality right and so those are like these markers of truth and reality for us you know babies because we're all familiar with babies and dinosaurs because like i don't know that's the foundation of like nature i guess you know we just think about the dinosaurs being here before us even though none of us really for sure know what dinosaurs exactly looked like you know it's all just essentially a hypothesis at the end of the day you know we've never seen one there are these markers of of fidelity and reality and i think that like war is like very much sometimes the same where like world war one and world war two as all wars you know as we've talked about are very wrapped up in the images of those wars but world war two says to us like you know we recreate it because this is like the truth. This is when America did something right. This is the real or whatever. Um, so you have like, you know, the infomercials for like World War II and color DVDs where it's just like the footage, the archival, the real authentic history. And I think that as people try to find and assign meaning to World War One, they're doing the same thing with like this new technology. So like babies and dinosaurs are used to prove that you know, a, a digital technology can capture the real wars are like, and especially World War One is is also a similar kind of marker of like the validity and uh, the fidelity of uh, new forms of image capture. One thing that is kind of like we're like kind of dancing around and don't have like a direct 
way to get to it, but is very much about like these like aesthetics of nostalgia mm-hmm. and ways of looking back at the past in a very kind of crystallized and glowing way. Another movie that's actually nominated in the Oscars for this year is Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. Yeah. Which is a movie which is like Benjamin Button, as I was saying, is this very nostalgic thing posed up against this narrative frame of Kate Blanchett on her deathbed, the impending. I mean, we all know Hurricane Katrina was a pretty devastating, you know, natural disaster. Mm-hmm. And so you're watching this movie in retrospect with that knowledge as well. And and just kind of seeing impending time deadlines happening on top of each other. And it's framed and I guess the color grading as well is very like cold. It's in a hospital, very sterile, kind of uses that in opposition with like the kind of gold and glowing mm. nostalgic footage uh, of the the story of Benjamin Button that she tells, but the Irishman is it's all told in a very kind of similar way, actually where Robert De Niro's character, the titular Irishman, the titular house painter is <laughs> living in a retirement home and, and telling the story to nobody just kind of saying it out loud and telling it to himself. And when you go back to these, these clips and, and the backstory of, uh, the characters and their their faces are de-aged. The color grading is very kind of mimicking that like kind of primary mm. and patriotic red and blue of old film photographs. Um, even showing like his involvement in World War II. Um, I mean, it's all presented very nostalgically, but I it kind of is framed in a way where it's as if these like very lush ways of looking back at the past in a way that probably isn't that truthful mm-hmm. is all framed through his memory and telling it back to himself, but in a very boastful manner of, of telling the story out loud. Yeah. I mean, they, 1917 and the Irishman are very, very different in the teleological sense because 1917 is just, as we've been saying this like forward motion. And I think the thing that's so agonizing about <laughs> war for a lot of people, uh, especially in like tr- the trench warfare of world war one is just the like waiting and because the camera always has to be moving in 1917, you never really get that sensation of just like arduous waiting for potentially your death. And the Irishman presents this like what it acknowledges is like a fractured, fragmented, misty view of the past. You know, this guy's fading memories. So people will mm-hmm. like, you know, have criticized the, the de-aging technology and stuff. But the fact that it's not like authentic you know really capturing their youth or whatever like the fact that it's sort of a little bit off is like i think to the movie's benefit because it works with how this just old guy is just like telling his now retreating disappearing view of what happened i mean the movie doesn't even say like this is the definitive account of what happened to jimmy hoffa because people don't you know know still exactly this is just like this one sort of fractured flashback ridden view of of history so there's this uh concept that i think ties into this but it's going to require kind of reading a longer quote uh but it's from clint hawking who's a game designer who did like far cry 2 a lot of the splinter cell games he's working on like watchdogs legion now like the one about Mm -hmm. hacking everybody and everyone having a backstory but he also is a pretty instructive for like a lot of like theories about game design from the the 2000s 
Um, and he talks in this one lecture about simulation boundaries and, and where to draw lines and simulation and interactability mm -hmm. and stuff in games. But he defines it in relation to movies in a way that I think is pretty interesting. Uh, so this is it's a lecture. It's a transcription. But he says he's kind of defining terms for this lecture. And he starts off with defining simulation boundary. Uh, simulation, firstly, is defined as the imitative representation of the functioning of one process or system by means of the functioning of another. A boundary is simply the edge of something. So a simulation boundary is defined as the line beyond which the imitative representation of a system is discontinued. Or, to keep it simple, the parts of the game that the player cannot play with. Because this term is important here, a couple examples of simulation boundaries that you're familiar with, both from cinema. Backdrop paintings defined as simulation boundary. Anything that is in the foreground is either actors, props, wardrobe, or set. But those rolling mountains out the window are a painted backdrop, and no action in the film world is ever going to touch the elements of the painting. Similarly, character backstory defines a simulation boundary. The stuff that is implied or even directly reported to us about what happened to a character outside the time frame of the film is immutable within the action of the film itself. Which the Irishman, I feel like, so backstory just being like people talking mm -hmm. about something that happened to them in the past and not actually showing it. But I feel like with the Irishman, the way in which the memory so imbues itself on like the reproduction of those events and, and the way that's represented in like the digital, like how inseparable computer editing in, is in rendering those events, I feel like does kind of render them also into surfaces mm -hmm. and these kind of simulation boundaries in themselves of things that you aren't sure if they actually did happen or didn't happen. Yeah, I think that the Irishman is really interested in surf like this sort of surface of memory because I think that it uses the sort of Netflix original visual aesthetic to its benefit. I think a lot of people joke about, you know, Netflix originals like not being real movies, but a lot of the time those movies do have a sort of like visual hollowness where you're very aware of like the boundaries of the set or that it's just like a maybe not the greatest digital camera or just feels a little cheap or, or something. Maybe that it's filmed all in a room in Atlanta exactly. or Toronto or somewhere. Yeah, and I think that more than maybe other Martin Scorsese movies that The Irishman does have that kind of like cold artificiality to some moments, but it's also like works for the movie because this is these are the fading memories of an old man and so like the details aren't totally there and there's some things that are just kind of blank and sterile in a like fading way i have another quote here from the uh the book the social photo mm -hmm. uh about kind of digital nostalgia and fake fake uh vintage photos uh, but he's talking about the origins of the term nostalgia um he says the term nostalgia was coined more than 300 years ago to to describe the medical condition of severe, sometimes lethal homesickness marked by pronounced depression or even physical ailments, which I feel like in something like the Irishman that so ties the nostalgia of the mind to the condition of the body. I think that is kind of an interesting way to reframe that. I don't know. I was talking with uh, my friend about like unreliable narrators, mm -hmm. specifically in like Southern Gothic stuff. And she just watched the first season of True Detective which the whole thing is framed through Matthew McConaughey at like three different points in his character's life. Yeah. Um, so you have like three different unreliable narrators and you see how it transitions from one kind of unreliability to another. Uh, but the Irishman, I mean, is kind of about the unreliability of your own narration of your life through memory and how those sometimes you'll misremember things or things are a little bit more floaty and sleek 
than they actually would be in real life. Mm -hmm. I think a useful concept at this point, like in a some uh, just a term like in a technical sense, but also perhaps a like sort of paradigm for us is just like the idea of remastering. Yeah, reapproaching something that has already been made. Yeah, because as we've been saying, you know, like all, so many of these historical recreations and re and revisitations are attempting to make the past conform to the standards of today. And that's the thing about remasters, you know, it, it implies kind of like upgrading, improving, making something better, but ultimately it's just like conforming it to the standards of today. I mean, like the special edition of the Star Wars original trilogy is like a perfect example because the 97 CGI that Lucas introduced is now to a lot of people feels more dated than the original 77, more practical effects. So it's not really like, I don't know, there's that Im implied like expertise uh, in terms of mastering, but I don't know. The history of remastering those is, is kind of strange because you look at it in terms of like different media and how different media gets reapproached. Uh, it's weird for like films to get remastered and touched up mm -hmm. or video games even too because a lot of times the the way that it communicates with you is something that is then being kind of manipulated right yeah i mean there's people who like you know post screenshots on twitter of like this blu-ray version of this movie like changed the color too much or like you know there's some more famous examples i can think of. there's like gone with the wind where like the shade of green of the dress that scarlett o'hara makes from the curtains was like a totally different shade of green on one version mm -hmm. but i mean even like video games to me are really tough just because the fact that their software made for a certain set of hardware i think does influence a lot of the design of it mm -hmm. so decontextualizing it from that hardware sometimes does inherently change parts of it but one thing i think that's a game example i guess that's interesting to look at in this case is the game shadow of the colossus yeah. which had an original version on the playstation 2 got remastered and put on a collection with Eco, the game from Fumito Ueda, who also directed Shadow of the Colossus on the PlayStation 3, and that was like a high-definition remaster, but still like the same game assets and everything just cleaned up. And then they remade it on the, the PlayStation 4, and they made like all new assets, mm -hmm. new game code, new everything, and made like a 4K HDR version of it, which, I don't know, remastering and, and remaking video games is, as I said, a little bit strange just because the way hardware is so intrinsically tied to the original game mm -hmm. and Fumito Ueda's games specifically are ones that I feel like use those ways that video games communicate with you, whether it's images, control flow, I don't know, even like sharpness and definition. I feel like his games kind of use those and maybe the mm -hmm. lower fidelity of an older screen in a way that, that leaves something for the mind to fill in and leave something for, for that makes a little bit more immersion in the way that maybe, I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, people in like the game, game emulator community who like, you know, insist on buying the right cathode ray tube TV to get the like, you know, right amount of to, to go with the corresponding like frames per second of the game. Or, you know, even like yeah. that's kind of a little bit comparable to like, you know, in, insisting that a movie looks better on a print versus a DVD copy or whatever, which is like true in a lot of the cases but it's also like what is better like what are these standards of quality yeah which in terms of like this kind of stuff like standards of quality like that are usually also tied to like 
the limits of like availability and accessibility mm-hmm. where like maybe downloading a ROM and running it on your computer, like, I don't know, game collection especially gets into this, like needing to play it on real hardware and everything. If you get like deep enough into all that stuff and it just like at a certain point, it's just like limiting and expensive and yeah. borders on like gatekeeping for a community that just requires you to have a lot of money yeah. and have been around for a lot of this stuff. Um, but I don't know, someone being able to play it or someone even being able to watch it if it's a movie, watching it digitally, playing it on your computer or something, some t- I mean, that's better than, mm-hmm. you know, never being able to ever see this ever because you don't get a film print. Yeah, you know? exactly. Um, it's also like, you know, when you think about it, like when you define remaster in this kind of more expansive way, really it's like memories, our own memories are sort of remastering the past. Uh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's looking back at something and kind of removing the bad stuff filling in the good stuff it's like whenever people say oh well you know music when i was growing up was just it's just the best or you know old they don't make movies like they used to they don't make video games like they used to a lot of it is kind of this what that golden age mentality of being able to look back and Mm -hmm. and only really see the hits and forget about all the just the weird stuff in between yeah absolutely another thing to tie in at least about shadow of the colossus this is another clip from gareth damian martin who uh wrote that thing i wrote about battlefield one earlier he's a very instructive writer about games and screens and Mm -hmm. and the history of images um but he's kind of talking about this game specifically uh and and the remaster of it and mainly video games in general um he said I often forget that these are spaces we never truly enter. While our minds might seem to wander past the screen, it's a hard border for us, one that we can never pass. In truth, it seems that game spaces aren't true spaces at all, but images of spaces presented at a steady clip of 30 to 60 frames per second. Why does this matter? Because while games may be the bastard child of art and architecture combined, it's worth remembering that their pre-digital history is one that connects to the history of images and images of spaces before it does the history of architecture or spaces themselves. So that's one thing that's also kind of relates to what I was trying to say about remastering video mm-hmm. games is that there's, I don't know, because it is, it's not, I mean, it's, you know, image and sound and all of these things, but there's never actually anything happening behind the screen. Um, so remastering them for other sets of hardware is always, rather than being this stripping back of layers of time, it actually is kind of prescribing yeah. new meanings onto it based off modern viewing standards in the same way that that Peter Jackson documentary did. Yeah, I mean, uh, they shall not grow old is basically like remastering history. Um, yeah, I mean, 1917 a little yeah. bit does feel like reapproaching World War One, taking out the bad things, but rather than really stripping away and getting to the truth, you're yeah. just prescribing modern truths onto it. Um, but I mean, in the same way you have this kind of like posh period piece collection that's kind of happening now Yeah. with last year with like green book, I guess that was two years ago, but green book kind of feels like the Jim Crow era remastered. Yeah. And, a little softer, a little bit more. Yeah. More glowingly and everything. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody is like the story of queen remastered yeah. and they make sure to like take out the fact that Freddie Mercury died of AIDS and stuff like yeah. that. I even was thinking like, as we were talking earlier that Hamilton is basically like 
the American Revolution remastered and like very much, you know, it's like Hamilton is still a slave owner, even if you make the person who plays him not white. Uh, so it's just kind of like trying to make history fit into the standards, the political or, you know, political standards of today. And I guess this ultimately is kind of scoping out to talk about the ways that, you know, history gets recaptured and, and redeployed and maybe how things are lost in that. Yeah. There was in that book, I know I'm just reading a lot of quotes. That's okay. And this one, but I feel like we're just getting a little bit too theoretical. I need something to ground me, <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, Virginia Heffernan in uh, that book, magic and loss talks about like MP3 mm -hmm. compression and, and the MP3 file. Um, and she talks about it in this way of where MP3 files are actually just representational bits that paraphrase music. Um, and she says, MP3 compression is predicated on the idea that one slice of data skimmed off the top can communicate a sound made in time and space by multiple bodies, collisions, textures, and movement. Mm -hmm. And so I guess this is a bit of getting down to what we're kind of talking about, which is that, I mean, in ways like the representation and the product, the produced like retelling of the past is, I mean, obviously never going to be the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's always like we always want it to be a very material thing. That's why I think in so much of like everything from the like faux vintage photo filters you're talking about um, earlier to like 1917's single take to whatever else we've talked about. I think that it's very much about trying to make our memory of the past a like materially tangible thing like mm -hmm. make it have a surface make it have a grain to it something that like lets us know that it's alive and real and not just like forgotten and in the past yeah there's a we that's probably like the second or third episode we've talked about gemini man since doing an mm -hmm. episode on gemini man but i was thinking about it's that the key to everything it kind of is but i was thinking about that while I was watching 1917 also because I was thinking about this, like how, I mean, this in opposition to what we were talking about with the Soviet revolution also happening in 1917. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, not even just that, but how produced and small in scope a vision of history, the movie 1917 is versus, you know, other things that also happened in 1917, but also like film developments that happened in 1917. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about, Gemini man kind of takes this concept of the fabricated history, the manufactured one and the manufactured memory. Um, and it's about that in relationship with the modern reality. So in Gemini man, you have this manufactured version of Will Smith that's based off of his, you know, iconic roles as like fresh Prince, fresh yeah. Prince and, and in, in independence day. And he's a, a created clone who has come to kill the new Will Smith or not the new Will Smith, but the modern version of Will Smith. So it's about this, the ghost of history coming back to kill modern times. The angel of history, the angel of history of death, if you will. Yeah. Sorry, Benjamin. Um, Sad. RIP. This whole podcast is just burn one for Walter Benjamin. <laughs> A little bit. Yeah. Basically the whole hot box, yeah. the cinema, the retelling of history in the age of, digital compositing damn the reproduction 
Um, that's actually interesting. I don't know, just like as we're sort of winding down, because it reminds me like, you know, I always read that essay, like the, the how I was introduced to it was under the name The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, which is, you know, the name that it's most well known under. But like in grad school, in one of my theory classes, we read a like more recent translation that was like, not mechanical reproduction, but um, like, yeah, okay, the work of art in the age of its technological reproducibility. So not exactly like the same thing. It's not as um, not as tight of a title, I'll be honest. Yeah, no, it's not. But actually, maybe this was not it. But there was it was something different. Like it was technological, not reproduction, but another word. And I don't know. It's just like different translations of history. Basically, is kind of like what we're talking about here a little bit like different authors different voices different languages and vernaculars um at different times telling ultimately different stories from the same source the uh i mean if you want to talk about this is probably like the last thing to really say on this topic but um and talking about remastering remaking re-releasing and reissuing something i mean one of the one of the biggest maps for that is the uh the bible damn bringing it back home to the good book but i mean it's this uh this document that this thing that was translated into you know many languages throughout the world and then the roman empire yeah Uh, and that also like inspired technological development Um, yeah but then also was like reproduced to help the king at the time the king james version for political ends uh, but now, I mean, there are all different kinds of translations and all different t- like people arguing about how deep much something deviates from the original language yeah. that it was printed in, which even then, I mean, was the original language accurate in describing events? Did they have the words for what they needed to say back then? I don't yeah, know. that's the thing that's very interesting about the Bible is just thinking about authorship and like having this just compendium of different sources and voices that it's then brought together into like a single unified take basically a like coherent ideology from all of these multiple sources that over time gets simplified down into um one kind of solid thing but even then i mean you can go to a store and buy like well depending on where you live i don't know you can go online also and and buy like dozens of different versions right of this same singular take and then you've got the uh, like apocrypha, the, you know, the like books that didn't make it into exactly. That's the thing is that they cut out different books. Yeah, yeah. As it so, got you know censored and and reprinted and redistributed, which that was something I was kind of fascinated by. Like when I was an early teen, when I was like starting to question my faith, was like I was like, oh, there are all of these numerous books that got chopped out of the Bible at one point or another. And I was like, this is kind of curious. Like this makes me think a little bit differently about this whole like gospel thing, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So I was like obsessed with, I didn't actually even really read any of them, but I was kind of obsessed with just like the apocryphal books of the Bible for a period. (laughs) Anyway, this conversation is getting apocryphal. A little bit. I think I have one end note. I ended up in this discussion of shadow, the Colossus and everything. Uh, I worked for a while on this, essay about it that ended up getting like some weird like publishing stuff so it ended up not getting published so until this point it's kind of just been like a personal manifesto that's gone nowhere but it's about remakes remasters and all these things 
Um, and it talks about the Shadow of the Colossus remake, mm-hmm. which was made out of all new assets. I'm not really, I don't think it really shared any code with the actual original game. It's just like a literalist interpretation a little bit. And it also is in a pair, it starts in a paragraph that quotes that Gareth Damian Martin quote from earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, video games as we experience them are a string of images that we interface with so that we can enter the proper sequence of inputs and and achieve a win state or reward. They're always contradictory at once portraying depth and consequence but only existing as light, sound, and vibration. When I was playing the Shadow of the Colossus remake, the sensation most readily reminded me of when the hard border of the screen that Gareth Damian Martin mentioned in that quote that I mm-hmm. said earlier uh, when that hard border crashed as my flawless phone screen collided with a concrete floor, I got the the screen replaced on it at a screen repair store and instantly noticed a warmer color temperature, slower refresh rate, and other image qualities that were new to me, but I only noticed these artifacts of hardware because of my intimacy with the screen that previously displayed all my text, feeds, data. These immaterial frictions covered my newly smooth glass like a factory screen protector or moisture right after washing your hands. But the digital experience of my phone didn't change. My material relation to it did. Even this, however, fails to capture the remake because this screen is only a new surface to access the same technology underneath, like a film or album restoration that changed the technological avenue Mm -hmm. to convey the same material. Though the PS4 version of Shadow of the Colossus more clearly conveys the object of the original, this clean version of the original game is made of new assets and assembled by new artists. It seems that the video game image cannot portray its referent more precisely because its referent was never captured and limited into an image. It was already image. And so I think that kind of gets to a lot of the larger thematic things that we've been talking about in relation to reproducing history with modern technology. Absolutely. It's all just an image. Well, I feel like that's probably a good point to wrap it up on. (laughs) I'd say so on the second version of this podcast. (laughs) The second take, yeah, 1918. <laughs> Nathan, where can, uh, do you have anything you want to promote? <laughs> um, not really. I mean, as always, you can find me on Twitter at Trillmore Girls. What about you? I'm on Twitter at ASAP Sunscreen. So I don't know. Promoting my tweets. Yeah. Of course, you can follow the podcast at Hotbox the Cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, we would really love to hear from some listeners, you know, if you want to drop us a line, maybe. Um, Send an email. Yeah, hotboxthecinema at gmail.com. Or if you want your voice to be featured, if that's something that interests you and you like the sound of your voice and would like others to hear it, um, you can leave us a voicemail at 615-592-1003. Um, yeah, you know, don't don't get too winded with it. But if you have a question or comment or like want to berate us for some stupid point we made in an earlier episode, feel free to call yeah. in. Or if you want to, if you really just take umbrage with this episode, you know. Yeah. Have at If it. you fought in World War One, Yeah, if we have any veterans listening right now. First, thank you for your service. Mm-hmm. You know, as Miles Teller, star of the movie, thank you for your service, would have me say. Uh, <laughs> that Goodness. cracked. I don't. I never saw that movie, but I just love using that poster for that as like a reaction image, replying to people on Twitter. I'm not even familiar with this movie. Yeah, I know it was some like post American Sniper like Ooh, okay. veteran inspirational movie with Miles Teller as a returning yeah. vet. Dang, 
I just imagine going to like going to the box office for that movie and asking like, "Thank you for your service," and just like saying that to the person oh, working by at saying the box what office. you want to see. You're actually thanking yeah, them. Exactly. That's a little. We bit should be in- thanking our movie theater workers. Yeah, the movie theater workers though. Uh, they always tell me I can't take my water bottle in. Wow. Yeah. That's really cold. Actually, when I went to go see uh, a movie last weekend or two weekends ago i brought i have this uh like a 32 ounce water bottle i just kind of take with me everywhere yeah i like to stay hydrated um but i usually take it to go see a movie because you know it's it stores a lot of liquid i can just not have to get up and get a refill during the thing yeah. but every once in a while they'll give me a hassle about it and like last weekend or two weekends ago i went to go see one at the mall movie theater and the person's like, you can't have any outside food or drink in there. Usually they tell me to go put it in my car. But this person, I was like, what should I do with it? And they were like, uh, there's a trash can behind you. Just dump the water in there. So I had to like dump at least 16 ounces of water just in, oh my God. in the bottom of a garbage bag. I was like, there's a high chance the custodian is going to spill this. This is going to make somebody's job awful oh my god i thought they were gonna like challenge you to drink it all like you have to drink all this water in front of me right now or else i won't let you into the movie god i always never know like what that's i mean i get that it is an outside beverage but yeah i don't know if they think i'm bringing like 32 ounces of vodka in the theater or something like what do you it's clear you can see what it is yeah i don't know but anyway until next time keep on token that's my fam, I'll hold them down forever. Us against the world, we can battle whoever. Together ain't no way we gon' fail. You know I got your back, just like a turtle shell. Nobody do it better. All my brothers tryna get some shut up. We all wanna cut like a shut up.
Oh, my God. 